Thank you, David. Morning again, Arcadia. I love that last song that we just did. It was wonderful, right? Please agree with me. I liked it. Could have sung that for another 40 minutes. Maybe skip this. Now I'll get an amen. Anyway, so um, what I like about that song is not only the music, which I think we do well, but I love the words to that song, which Sean really um, sort of leaned into and pressed into, which uh, is good, really good stuff. Well, we have made it. Uh, we are at our sixth week on this uh, series about uh, building a stronger church that's locally contextualized for us here at Arcadia, talking about how our vision in Arcadia is uh, knowing Jesus and loving our uh, community. Uh, and the fact that we've made it, this is the last week of this series, means that we're going to be starting something new. And so I thought I'd review that with you real quick so you know what to expect and, and some of you who like to read ahead what we're going to do. Uh, for the next three weeks prior to Easter, we're actually going to be doing a book out of the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. His name is Habakkuk. And uh, I would suggest that you read this book. It's fairly short. It's only three chapters. We're going to take just three weeks to go through it. But I also suggest that you read it in advance because it's a, it's a dark and troubling book. And, and I would suggest that you're going to read this and you're going to have some questions about this book, about the narrative, about the text, about what's going on in there. And we're going to do our very best to answer those questions uh, in the next three weeks. But it's, a, it's also a wonderful book to lead us into our next series, which is going to be a little bit longer. Our next series is going to be a verse-by-verse uh, trip through the book of Romans. And that's 16 chapters, and that's going to take us a while to get through. But the thesis of Romans, essentially, is in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul quotes from the book of Habakkuk, and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. That is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And that is the, center theme, the centerpiece theme also of the book of Habakkuk, as dark and troubling as it is. In the midst of all that dark and troubling stuff, God says, listen, the righteous are going to live by faith. And that's what it takes for us to be able to live. So that's what we're going to do the next three weeks. And then, on, like I said, on Easter Sunday, we're going to start Romans, the book of Romans. And we'll do the first seven verses on Easter Sunday of the book of Romans. But back to uh, what we've looked at the last six weeks here in Arcadia. We have talked about how we want to know Jesus and love our community. And, and we said there are characteristics of a, of a great church, a strong church, a better church that uh, we need to embrace if we're going to be able to do that well, if we're going to be able to fulfill that mission and vision. And so we talked about unity, unity in Christ, the fact that in the church, although it's one body, it is made up of many different members, many diverse members, but we have a unifying factor, a harmonizing factor in Christ Jesus. And so even in the midst of our differences, we can also have a unity. And then we also talked about the importance of proclamation, of proclaiming the gospel, and of teaching God's word. That was week number two, and, and great churches do that. From there, we talked about generosity, that great churches uh, are filled with generosity, but, but it's very important. We made the distinction about how generosity is not just the act of giving money. A lot of people think that is all generosity is, but not according to Scripture. Uh, according to Scripture, generosity is more an attitude than a behavior. It is the fact that we are to be generous in spirit, and, and, and that there are many currencies of generosity. And so we can be generous with our time and with our commitment, with our relationships, with our empathy, with many other things as well. And so a generous spirit is important. And we talked about in week four about the importance of prayer as our foundation, that, that great churches are praying churches. 
And then last week we talked about churches needing to walk in the light, not only as a church, but the individual members being able to walk in, in the light uh, and, and that part of, a big part of walking in the light is actually the discipline and practice of confession, of confessing our sins to each other, of being able to be in community, uh, a community that is filled with grace and trust uh, where we can actually practice that discipline. Great churches are, are also confessing churches as well. And so today we get to the last week, the, the, probably the most important characteristic of a great church. Uh, it is a church that is on the move. It is a church that is called and sent. It is a church that recognizes uh, exactly what the church is supposed to be. I, I've always found it funny in the 30-odd years that I've been a, a Christian uh, I, I've always found it interesting that it seems as though uh, Christians and church people sort of have this idea backwards. It, it, it seems as though we always want to talk about what is the mission of the church? What's the mission of the church? And the reality is, the truth is, is that the church doesn't have a mission, but the mission has a church. The church doesn't have a mission, but the mission has a church. I would suggest to you that Jesus calls us and sends us on mission before he ever really even talks about us being a church. That a church is around to support the mission. A church is around to give structure to the mission. But really, the church isn't a church unless we are on mission and we recognize that we are subservient to the mission. So it's not that the church has a mission, but rather the mission has a church. And so we look at this in two passages today, actually, the one that David read from, which is John chapter 20. If you would please turn there in your Bibles, go to John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 19 through 23. David read through 22, which is what we asked him to do, but we're also going to look at 23 as well, which is kind of a, an interesting verse that has given some people some trouble over the years, but it's also part of uh, being called in sense. And then we're going to from there, we're going to go back to the Gospel of Matthew and look at the uh, last few verses of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28. But first, let's look at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. I want to reread this passage and add 23 to it uh, before we dive into it. So John writes these words. Now, the context of this is right after the resurrection. Jesus has been crucified, and now that morning they found out that the tomb was empty. So he writes, starting in verse 19, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, here's what's going on. Uh, the disciples were meeting together for probably three main reasons. The, the first reason is that they were meeting together simply to pray together. Uh, they were afraid of the Jews because the Jews... Uh, along with uh, assistance from the Roman government, had crucified, had executed Jesus, and they knew that because they were a part of Jesus' movement, that they might be targets as well, and so they were afraid. They were afraid of the persecution, the oppression. They were afraid for their very lives, and so they thought it would be a good idea to get together and pray. 
So one of the great things that we can learn from this is that as persecuted people facing oppression, as people who are facing trials and tribulation in our lives, as people who might be suffering, we shouldn't run from prayer, we shouldn't run from the body of Christ, but rather we should run to those things. And they recognized this. Even though they weren't sure exactly how this was going to play out, they knew enough to at least get together and support each other and be in community with each other. So that was the first thing. The second thing was, was that they were probably meeting together to find out or to figure out if, if they had enough evidence of the resurrection to actually be able to go out and start talking about it publicly. Now you have to understand that there were some very reputable people in their group who could say, yes, Jesus has been raised, he is alive, but they were still at that point where they were going, I, I don't I don't know. We gotta, we gotta. Before we actually start going out and telling people that guy that was dead, he's alive. We saw him. Before we do that, we better make sure of this. So they were probably there discussing that as well. And, and then third, uh, th they probably were thinking about whether they should actually stay together as a body, or whether they should scatter. And the reason this would be a question is that if they did stay together as a body, they would be able to stay together and, and support each other, but they would also make them a very easy target for the Jews to finish their job that they had started with Jesus. You know, uh, they were afraid of the Jews because they knew that the, the, what, they, what they were doing was they were, they were using that strategy where if you cut off the head of a movement or the leader of a movement, then all you have to do really is go in and mop up the rest because by that... But by cutting off the head of the movement, you sort of deflate the followers. And it makes it easy to go in there and take care of the followers if you're able to take care of their leader. So they were probably trying to decide, should we stay together or should we scatter and start uh, different movements in different places away from the persecution? Um, so Jesus comes in and he says to them, peace be with you. Now, I will tell you that for 30 years, this... This has offered me some, I don't know, some irony or some, I don't know. I, it just seems strange to me. There isn't anything in the text that indicates that Jesus knocked on the door and that they opened the door and let him in. Everything in the text, and the scholars will tell you, that Jesus just appeared. That he was just suddenly there. That maybe he walked through the wall or walked through the door, or maybe he just, you know, sort of a beam-me-up Scotty, whatever it is, he just, he just suddenly appeared, and the first thing he says to them is, peace be with you, and I could imagine if I was there, that would have scared the snot out of me, what, peace be with you, so there's some irony there, he's saying, be peaceful now, but I am here, and then the fact that the text tells us that, they, that he showed them his hands and his side tells us that they weren't sure what was going on. They weren't sure who, exactly who it, you look a little bit like Jesus, but we're not. He says, well, see, look at my hands, look at my side. It really is me. So there was that moment, I have to believe, of, of angst, maybe a little bit of, of being frightened, maybe some momentary terror just of him coming in. But then he says it again. He says, all right, now, really. You know it's me. Peace be with you. Shalom, that word that, that uh, would, would mean uh, uh, general peace and welfare for everybody. This is something that you should embrace. And, and it's funny because the thinking here was that the resurrected body was in fact different than his fleshly body. Uh, it was not restricted in the way that a fleshly body was. But the scholars also say it wasn't necessarily ethereal either. 
It, it had consistencies with Jesus' ministerial body. That's why he was able to show him his hands and his side. And so he says to them again, peace be with you. A- and we believe that his appearance to them on that night when there was so much confusion and so much fear, did three things for the disciples in that room. The first thing is it did calm their fears. It helped take away the fear that they had. They were able to at least look at Jesus and say, okay, they think they cut off the head of this movement, but he's still alive. So that was able to calm their fears. They still had a leader. And then second, he was able to show them that they could live in victory, that Jesus had defeated death, that he had, had done exactly what he said he was going to do, that he was going to be raised from the tomb, that he was going to come back to life in three days. And then third, he gave them this resurrection. He gave them a compelling reason to continue his ministry. I'm still alive. There's a good reason to continue the ministry. So here's the deal. They cut up, essentially, they, they got rid of the leader, Jesus. So the disciples, his followers, are deflated. They're meeting together. They're not sure what to do. But now they come together and they see Jesus and they see that he's really still alive. And so their fears are calmed. And, and, and rather than being deflated, now Jesus is starting to inflate them a little bit more. And now they're beginning to see that there's hope and that there's a victory. And that they can live in confidence rather than fear. And not only that, but they can go out on mission. And so he's preparing them for the call to do what, he should, what he's calling them to do. And it should be the same for us. If you're a Christian, if you are in Christ... There is no reason that we should live in fear. It's been said many times, and if this is the first time you've ever heard this, this is a good day for you because you need to hear this. It's been said many times that the number one admonition that Jesus gives us in the New Testament, the number one command that Jesus gives us in the New Testament is, do not be afraid. He says that more than 500 times. He says that way more than any sin he might tell us to stop. He says that way more than any, any mandate that he might give us. He says, do not be afraid. And the reason that we shouldn't be afraid is not because we're so terrific and strong, but because he is terrific and strong and he is living within us. So that should be the same for us. But we should also be able to live in victory. The victory has already been won at the cross and by the empty tomb. And so... If we're in Christ, we should also celebrate in that victory. And I know in this world, this fallen world, it is tough to live in victory sometimes because this fallen world comes at us. The corruption of the world comes at us. And everybody, Christians, non-Christians, we all live with the burden and the suffering and the oppression of a fallen world. And it's hard to be able to live in victory. But ultimately we can because we know the tomb is empty and, and God has ultimate victory through his resurrected son. So he also calls us to live in victory. And finally, he calls us to continue not only the ministry that he started, but the ministry that the apostles followed up with and started as well after Jesus ascended into heaven. The, the church continues his ministry. A- and this is a ministry, this is a movement that's been going on for 2,000 years. I've said this many times and I still believe it. One of the greatest testimonies to the reality of the resurrected Christ is that the church has been around for 2,000 years and it only gets stronger and stronger and stronger. If this wasn't real, this thing would have been over hundreds of years ago. There are not many things that have been around 2,000 years, certainly no nation of any power. That ebbs and flows, yet 
the church has been around for 2,000 years. And I know some of you right now are thinking, yeah, but look at the church in America. It's not stronger than it used to be. Yes, but worldwide it is. Maybe we are going through a tough season in America with the church. And I would understand that to be true, but there are movements of Christians and, and Christianity all over the world that would absolutely stupefy us if we saw that they were happening. And it's because people are not living in fear. It's because they're living in victory. And it's because they're continuing the mission of Christ. The church is strong. In fact, there are countries now that send missionaries to the United States. That used to be our job. Send missionaries outside of the United States. There are countries that are sending missionaries here to tell people about Jesus because we need to do a little bit of better job of telling people about Jesus. So not living in fear, living in victory and, and, and being compelled to continue the ministry of Christ. And so here was Jesus' message for them. Essentially, he, his message centered around the idea that we are sent and then there's this forgiveness issue in, chapter, in verse 23, which we'll eventually get to. Let's talk about being sent first. Jesus says, I was sent by the Father, and now I am sending you. This seems to be a fairly consistent theme in the New Testament with a number of things. God loved us first, therefore we can love him and we can love others. God served us first and ministered to us first through Jesus Christ, Philippians Chapter 2 tells us, therefore, we can serve God and we can serve others because he did it first. God was generous with us first. We talked about that a few weeks ago. God was generous to us first. Therefore, we can be generous back to God as well. And now we understand that Jesus was sent to us first, so now we can be sent into the world as well. I, I don't know if you work anywhere where sometimes you might get frustrated with with your boss or somebody at work because they're always asking you to do something that they would never ask, they would never think of themselves to do for themselves. Now, I know they're your boss, and it's okay to ask you to do things that, you would, that they would never do for themselves, but even still, I know that that gripes some of us. They're asking me to do something they would never do themselves. That's not true with Jesus. He, he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself, that he hasn't experienced for himself. Hebrews tells us that he is a great high priest and savior because he has lived in our experience. And so in that respect, you could say, well, Jesus is a good boss. He's, he's lived our experience, and he's not going to ask us to do anything we, uh, he hasn't already done. We talk about this a lot in suffering. All of us suffer. Jerry's sister says that the one thing about suffering is that it is both universal and unique. Everybody suffers, and then it's unique. Everybody suffers in their own way. But one thing we know for sure, Jesus has suffered more than anybody. How many of you have been crucified? How many of you have been whipped? How many of you have gone through what Jesus has gone through? And so as he has suffered, we can also look to him for strength in our suffering as well. That's the whole theme behind uh, the book of Hebrews. That he, that's because that makes him a great high priest and a great savior. He, he's not telling us that we should do or experience anything that he hasn't done already. And so he says it this way about being sent. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And that's not the first time Jesus said that. He prayed that in John chapter 17. We looked at that in January. So that's not the first time we've encountered that. Uh, and so this is uh, also a theme with Jesus. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, the last three weeks, I've, I've had a lot of experience of being in hospitals, not for uh, uh, people who attend the church, but rather for people who are in my family. 
Uh, three weeks ago, it was my wife with appendicitis. And then yesterday morning, I got a call. Uh, my 92-year-old father had uh, passed, completely passed out. I mean, blacked out, unconscious. And when he did, he took a nasty fall a as a result of that and, as, and was in the uh, emergency room at uh, Phoenix Baptist Hospital at 19th and Bethany Home. And so I raced down there. And it's funny, my dad is just interesting. Um, so I walk in there, and, he, and he's awake now, and he's, man, he's got two huge black eyes, two big knots on his forehead, nothing broken, thankfully. Kept him overnight for observation, but I walk in. The first thing he says to me is, hello, Frank. That's just kind of the way he talks. And then the second thing he says to me is, mom and I aren't going to be there for church tomorrow, so give me the Reader's Digest version of your sermon." I said, okay, here it is. As the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. That's it, Dad. He said, well, that's great. Nice and short. Why can't you do that Sunday morning and we can save a lot of time, you know? <laughs> you know my dad. That's my dad. Anyway, by the way, just let me say this. I, I have to, this is way off topic, but let me just say this. They have been married for, my mom and dad, for 67 years. 67 years. Watching two people go through something like this at the hospital and everything, who have been married for 67 years, there's something, there's a sweetness there that I can't even begin to describe. And it was like I was just sitting there letting, watching them and kind of letting that little sermon preach to me and just thinking, you know, if that's how old Jackie and I end up being, this is the way I want it to be when Jackie and I are that age. It was really cool. But anyway. Jesus sends us because the Father has sent him. Now, here's a question that we have to kind of wrestle with. And, and I kind of have an answer, but I'm open to other interpretations. Are we sent exactly the same way that Jesus was sent? I'm not so sure. And, and here's why I ask that. Uh, remember years ago, the, the WWJD movement, you know? What would Jesus do? Y'all remember that? Come on, are you with me on this? WWJD, what, we had, we had uh, bracelets, we had uh, t-shirts, we had bumper stickers. For those of you really committed to the movement, you had anklets and, and just all kinds of goofy WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? I'm, I'm, I'm in the toothpaste aisle at, at, at the grocery store. What would Jesus, you know, we had to ask ourselves this question all the time. And I used to be troubled by that question because if I encountered somebody who was blind, I would, did not have the ability to spit into the dirt, make some mud, and paste it on their eyes and send them on their way with new vision. I didn't have that ability. And so I, I really struggled with that. And so I thought, well, maybe it's more like this. Instead of what would Jesus, have me, uh, what would Jesus do, how about what would Jesus have me do? What is it that Jesus is sending me to do under the power of the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit in me, knowing that I'm not necessarily going to be able to have people grow limbs back and, and heal lame people and, 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 and heal blind people? Spiritually, I can certainly present the gospel to them, but physically, I'm going to struggle with that kind of stuff. So what would Jesus have me do? WWJHMD would be my anklet, I guess. Well, 
as the church, our jobs pick up where Jesus left off. We are to proclaim the truth and power of the gospel. We are to bear witness to the reality of Jesus in our lives, give our testimony. We are, we are sent to minister, to serve, and to love others. And, and, and we are to do the will of the one who sends us, not our will. And that is always a, a tension in every church that I've ever been in, that, that, that people and their will tend to get in the way sometimes of what the actual mission of the church is. And you have to wrestle with that. And there's going to be tension there. And there is a more specific job description of what we're supposed to do in Matthew 28, which we're going to get to in just a couple of minutes. But it is kind of interesting also that Jesus breathes on them in order for them to receive the Holy Spirit and as a sign that they are to start their new sent ministry. Understand, they don't have a church yet. They don't have a, they don't have a church in the sense that, that, that they um, have a place that they meet all the time. They don't have a building yet. And already they're being sent. The first thing on Jesus' mind is to be sent, to be called, and to go. And, and, and so he breathes on them as an indication that they're to start their sent ministry. And I, and I think of the imagery here. Everybody in that room was probably familiar with Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, although they did not have chapter and verse divisions at that time. But we know it is Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 7, where God breathes into Adam and he breathes life into him. And so now Jesus is, in a sense, breathing life into them, their new life, a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so like Adam being given life, the disciples and you and I are given life by the Holy Spirit. By the way, Scripture has two categories of people in this world and no other category. There is no other category than these two categories, Scripture teaches. You are either in Adam... Or you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, it means that you are saved from sin and that you are empowered to live and will be a part of the resurrection. That's if you're in Christ. Those, those two words that, that Paul uses together almost 200 times in his letters. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Him. So we can be in Christ. That can be our identity. Or our identity is in Adam. The only other category. And that, that category is not good. Here's what scripture teaches about being in Adam. It means that you are separated from God and that when you die physically, you will spend eternity in a place called hell. And so I would implore you, if you're in Adam and not in Christ, to understand that God is calling you to be in Christ. So Jesus breathes on them. It's a picture of our new life. It's a picture of the new life in the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So understand, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are sent and that we are ambassadors for Christ. It is not by the power of the elders. It is not by the power of the pastors. It is not by the power of church committees, which I know that can be confusing to some people because in the past maybe you've had a church experience where they thought it was by the power of the elders or the committees. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you get to verse 23, that forgiving verse, which is somewhat difficult. Let me, let me give you three quotes from Bible scholars that will help set the stage for how we're going to talk about that. Matthew Henry says this, 
The meaning of this verse has been hotly debated for centuries. One thing is certain. This certainly does not mean that we have the power to justify people from their sins so that they become born again. Only God can do that. Then Merrill Tenney says, All who proclaim the gospel are in effect forgiving and not forgiving sins, depending on whether or not the sin hearer accepts or rejects the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus as the sin bearer. And Beasley Murray says it this way, There is no evidence that the power to forgive sins is given to officers in the church, but that by proclaiming the gospel, we are showing the way to forgiveness. So, again, forgiving is the work of God, not of us, but God does use us as tools. We are not able to forgive sin in the sense that God forgives it. He uses us as a tool to lead people, to show people the way to redemption. And, and then we can present Jesus, we proclaim the gospel, we can testify to the reality of him in our lives, but then whether or not they, they accept Jesus is not up to us. It's not our job to produce results. Our job is to do what God asks us to do, which is to go and proclaim. It's not our job to, to put a notch in our belt or have a, have a running um, uh, chicken scratch total at home on a whiteboard of how many people have come to Christ. The results are all up to him. It's the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's the crux of the matter on this forgiving verse. That Jesus would talk about forgiving or not forgiving sins at this particular meeting, at this critical time, is a clear indication of the very serious nature of being sent, of going on mission. Being sent in the world to proclaim the gospel is not just a mission of compassion, but rather it is a mission of proclamation. And, and, and the, the, the tension that we have, especially for the last 120 years, has been that church and, and church people often talk about compassion not as something in addition to proclamation, but rather as a substitute or an alternative to proclamation. That if we just show people how nice we are, that's all we need to do, they'll come to Jesus. And, and the truth is, I, I get all of, the, all of the sayings, you know, uh, uh, it's been attributed to uh, St. Francis of Assisi that, um, uh, you know, preach the gospel always, use words only if necessary, those kinds of things. Um, your life may be the only Bible that somebody else ever reads. I get all of that, and I agree with all of that. The problem is, is that at some point, you do need to step up to the plate and say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. We have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We have to do the very often difficult work, troubling work, uncomfortable work of telling people about what their nature is like according to scripture and that Jesus comes and rescues us from that nature, that, that fallen nature. And, and I want you to understand, I want you to hear this. I am pro-social gospel. That idea of compassion and kindness is, has been labeled for uh, more than a century as something known as the social gospel. It, it's something that I actually spent an entire semester in seminary studying. I, 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 I looked at the lives of Washington Gladden and Walter Rauschenbusch, all of those guys in that movement in the early 1900s that continues even today, known as the social gospel. Here's the problem, though. If it's all social and no gospel, it isn't the gospel. And it's not proclamation. And it isn't what Jesus calls us to do. Not all of what he calls us to do. There has to be gospel in there. But very often, we see that as a way to sort of subvert the challenging work of, of proclaiming the truth, which includes telling people the bad news before we get to the good news. And, and I'm telling you, here's the deal. Jesus didn't call us to be nice. 
Now, nice is good. Nice is a part of it. Nice is a tool. Nice is a characteristic we should embrace. I am pro-nice. I am for nice. But nice alone is not going to get the job done, and it's not the only thing that Jesus called us to do. He sends us to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. He sends us to testify to the reality of Jesus in our lives. He sends us to be ambassadors for the gospels, representatives of the gospel, the greatest power in the world. We can be nice as nice can be. I've seen this. You can walk up to a group of people and just be as nice as can be and then walk away and they are still in darkness. The niceness didn't change the fact that they are living in darkness. We need to proclaim the gospel as well. Now, I understand relational evangelism and that's my favorite kind of evangelism to do, but you eventually have to get to the proclamation part. And loving our community is a big part of our vision and being nice is a part of that, but an even bigger part of that is shining light into the darkness and that means proclaiming who Jesus is. Here's what Tim Keller says about this. When Jesus Christ says, you are the salt and the light of the world, this is what he is saying a Christian should be like. Okay, now hold your breath. Number one, salt and light expose decay and darkness. If you are light, that means your life should be so beautiful that when it comes in contact with other parts of the environment, the beauty of your life shows up other things for what they are really are. For example, if you're a Christian, then just by your very presence and testimony, you show up, you reveal the dishonesty in a business. You reveal the gossip in the office. You reveal the racism in your neighborhood. You reveal the corruption in your political ward. You reveal the promiscuity in your party. Just simply by being a Christian and testifying to the reality of Jesus. You can walk in and it immediately makes racism look like racism. It makes promiscuity look like promiscuity. It makes the gossip look like gossip. It makes the corruption look like corruption. Just by you saying, I'm going to live according to the truth, to the beauty and honor of Jesus Christ. So that is what it takes to be sent. Shining light into the darkness. Now, for our final definition of what this means, what our job description looks like, go to Matthew 28, a little bit to the left, the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll look at three more verses. Matthew chapter 28. Starting way down in verse 18 toward the end. So, Jesus comes to them. This is right before the ascension, right before he goes to heaven. And he came to them and he said, starting in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, in the Christian church, this has been known for years as the Great Commission, which I know gets some of you in sales very excited, but this is not about a percentage of the sale. This is about a mandate from Jesus. He is commissioning us to go on mission. And it's interesting that the only true verb, the only real grammatical verb in this entire passage is the verb make disciples. And it is an imperative, which means it is a command. If we are Christians, we are supposed to be involved in making disciples. That means telling people about Jesus, testifying to our salvation, inviting others into salvation. It means teaching the bad news that I mentioned before, that they're lost without God in their life through Jesus Christ, and then preaching the good news that salvation is in Jesus. The other three 
uh, words in there that act as verbs are actually participles and they are what's known as a subordinating participle because they are subordinate to that main verb, which is making disciples. So everything flows from making disciples, but they are all connected, and they are also act like imperatives. So it is imperative that we go. He's saying you, you, you still need to go. You still need to leave the church and get out there in the marketplace and in your communities. And he says even into all of the world, he says all nations. So our call into and our desire for mission is not just local although that's important and we shouldn't discount that we need that but it is also global we're pretty good right now in arcadia i've been around three years we're pretty good with local missions we've we've got a lot of stuff going on locally what i'm really excited about is some of the behind the scenes work that is taking place right now uh, there is a small group of guys a team of guys that is getting ready to talk about global missions what redemption arcadia is going to do globally and we're not talking about just south of the border we're talking about actually globally and that's very exciting we're not ready to wheel it out but i want you to know we're talking about it and we're praying about it and there's been meetings and it is exciting stuff so as we are going we are to make disciples see here's what jesus is saying by using these subordinating participles he's saying that none of this is segmented out uh, so many churches, somebody said once, you know, uh, having a, a, a church with a missions department is like having a church with an evangelism department. It doesn't make any sense. The church is evangelism. The church is about missions. You don't have a department for these things. You don't segment them out. The missions area isn't just for those people over there that like slides, Okay. That's not what it is. Everybody, it's integrated. All of life is all for Jesus. So as we are going, we are to make disciples, but that's not all. We're also supposed to baptize and teach. So baptism is the outward demonstration of the inward reality that has taken place in your life, that you have a redeemed life, that you're a new creation, that, that, that you, were, uh, you were buried with Christ. That's down into the water, and that you were raised to newness of life. That's coming up out of the water. And again, Easter. March 31st, baptism, contact me. We're ready to dunk you. We'll do it. And if we need to hold you down there a long time, we'll give you some scuba gear, whatever it takes, okay? We're ready to baptize you. But also, these new disciples need to learn. Old disciples need to learn too. So we need teachers and disciplers and leaders and mentors. We need people to step up and serve. We need people to, to help because there are new Christians in the body. Disciples need to understand that that it's not just that Jesus lives in us and saves us momentarily, but that he lives in us all the time and we need to be taught his word so we understand how to live as his disciples. And really, in that, you get kind of a perfect picture of what redemption really values when it does do church, and that would be the Sunday morning gatherings for some uh, congregations at Sunday night gatherings as well. Uh, it also, we value the redemption communities and other groups that foster fellowship and relationships and, and community. And we value theological education, which is the Wednesday night classes. We just finished a round of six weeks of classes on Wednesday nights. Had a wonderful time, really good attendance, good food, pretty good teaching. It was wonderful. We're going to start another round of those uh, April 3rd again. But also, there are Bible studies, there's this thing called surge, there's all these things that you can get in, involved in in order to learn more. And the idea is that we gather so that we can then scatter. 
A church doesn't just gather, but it gathers and scatters. A church doesn't just gather, but it does need to, uh, doesn't just scatter, but it does need to gather as well for support. And, and so here you go. Here's how we like to say it. If you're just a gatherer, you're only living half of what the church life is about. You need to be a scatterer as well. And if you're somebody who's just a scatterer, you're probably not here to hear this, so there's no point in me talking about it anyway. But if you happen to have wandered in here today and you're generally a scatterer, you need to be here a lot. You need to gather and scatter. That's what the, the, the church has been doing for 2,000 years. That's been their MO. That's been their methodology. Gather and scatter. Scatter and gather. That's it. 2,000 years of gathering and scattering, and it has worked for 2,000 years. And the reason we can do this is because Jesus has authority. How do we know that Jesus has authority? He's risen. He's alive. That's pretty good. Nobody else has ever done that. No one. He, he, he has done, he has accomplished what men and women for decades have been trying to figure out how to do. Anybody into cryogenics? It's right over there in Scottsdale. They can freeze you, and when they find the, the, the cure for whatever it is that ails you, they can bring you back to life. That's ostensibly what they want to do, right? It's called cryopreservation. Anybody here doing cryopreservation? Anybody here want to be risen with Christ? How about that? Come on, let me see. Yeah, there you go. See? All right, that was a great moment of manipulation on my part, by the way. Redemption Arcadia, this is what we're called to do, and this is what we're sent for. The gospel. Death has been defeated that's a big deal and and we do that by going and knowing and loving and baptizing and teaching and 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 we do it in community and we do it walking in the light uh, redemption arcadia is three years old um, and i i really believe a little more than three years and i really believe i really believe uh, that little victories add up into big victories and so just in the last 12 or 13 months. Let me talk about a couple of our little victories that are beginning to add up into big victories that are helping to give us direction and structure as we continue to be uh, what I would say is a permanent fixture in the community of Arcadia. Number one, we did sign a long-term lease for this building. Now, long-term is a relative term. I used to be in retail where we would sign 10-year leases. That was a long-term lease. Our lease is three years. So some of you might be going, that's not a very long-term lease. Well, what we had before was a month-to-month -month uh, lease, and they could kick us out anytime they wanted to. So compared to that, we have a long-term lease. Now, I will also tell you that we do need uh, sort of a, uh, a solution for this that's even longer term than that. And so one of the things that we are going to do looking forward, going forward, is in the next six months, I, I'm, I'm working to try to organize a small team of people who will help us to look at this problem of where we're going to be located for the long term in Arcadia. Whether it's here through a 15-year lease or something like that, or whether it's somewhere else, we don't know. But we know that we're going to be here for a while, and we need to start talking about it now rather than when we have to leave this building. And so I want to put together that team sometime in the next six months. So we have a long-term lease that's bought us a little bit of time. We also found offices, which was we really needed offices. And we were able to do that in June. That took about uh, six or eight weeks of hard pavement pounding and looking. But we're over, some of you have visited them. We're over at 36th Street and Indian School. Uh, one of the biggest accomplishments, frankly, was that we were able to find and hire Stephanie Shoemate as our operations uh, manager of the church. She has been a big, big help. And my, is she in? Nah, see. 
she knew I was going to she got trapped in here in the first service and was shy and was hiding and all that stuff. But we are glad to have Stephanie here. So if you see her, thank her for being here. Also, very excited about this. Josh Prather got promoted. He's, uh, he's still a part of Arcadia. He's still a part of our staff. He's still a resident here. And you'll still hear from him. But he is now the full-time director of CGI at Redemption Church Arizona, Community Global Initiatives. That is a big deal. And, and that has been a, a big advancement, not just for redemption, but also for Arcadia. As we mentioned last week, we've been involved in elder development. Very excited about uh, a little over a month ago, we launched our student ministry with uh, JP and Carrie Tanner and David Massey, and Stephanie's been helping with that. My daughter is a junior in high school, and so she's a part of that, and she has really enjoyed that. In fact, she's already started asking her friends to that. If you have children or know of any uh, students in that uh, 7th through 12th grade area that would like to be a part of that, you need to contact us in the office. Our children's ministry has been going great guns. Uh, it has been growing like mad, and Linda has done a wonderful job down there of putting things together, and, real, uh, and especially this new curriculum. I have heard nothing but good things from parents about this new curriculum that she instituted down there. We're excited about all the work we've done with refugees. We're excited that we were a part of buying that new tractor, which will, again, as soon as we get that video, we'll show you the vic video of the new tractor we got for them. Um, our, our budding relationship with Gateway Elementary School, which we are going to continue with. We are now a part of something called the Creighton Coalition of Churches, which is a big deal. We're doing a lot of work through them. And in the last 12 months, we've baptized 23 people. Now, in and of themselves, each of these things, little victories, but they add up to big victories. They begin to put some structure into place here, and they help us to realize that we are beginning to root ourselves in this community, which is very important. But there's still a lot of work to be done. We have a lot of things going on behind the scenes that we're talking about, praying about, and even trying to put some structure to. Lots going on. We would love your help. We would especially love your prayers as we do this. There's a town hall meeting for uh, Jack, the proposed Jack DeBartolo, the proposed elder on March 24th. We might talk also at that time uh, a little bit about uh, some of the other things that we are working on. But here's the challenge that we have. The harvest is plentiful, but we're looking for some workers. The harvest is out there. It's massive, and it's ripe, but we're looking for some workers. So let me pray as Sean comes up to lead us into our time of, of reflection and our time of response, our time of communion. God, I thank you for uh, how you've been moving in Redemption Arcadia for three years, and we just pray that you will continue to move. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the salvation that we have through your son and god it is by the power of your holy spirit and the resurrected christ in us that we are sent that we are called and that we are to go and so we pray to that end god give us the ability to do that we ask it in jesus name amen